Exodus chapter 9, please. We'll be looking at verse 13 in just a moment. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. As you're going there, I want to remind you of a saying that you've probably heard before. The saying is, the third time's the charm. The meaning of this oft-used idiom is that the third time you try to do something, it will work. As we come to this third cycle of three in the plagues, leveled by the Lord against Egypt, the validity of this expression will be put to the test. By the end of the first cycle, Pharaoh's own advisors, his court magicians, had given up and admitted their impotence. But not Pharaoh. Six plagues down, and his heart remains like stone. Once again, we will see and hear that the horror and devastation of these plagues escalates with this third cycle. It's almost as if the veil is being pulled back on the intense spiritual battle taking place between the Lord and Pharaoh and gradually being put on display on the canvas of creation. Things are reaching a fever pitch as every element of the natural order seems to be caught up in this cosmic conflict in one way or another. This last set of plagues constitutes the longest narratives in the whole series. There's more dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh here than we've ever been privy to before. And as a result, there is much for us to glean from this power play game of spiritual politics that takes place between them. If our ears are perked up and our eyes are open, let us hear the word of the Lord. From Exodus chapter 9, starting with verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough of thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, 
When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you will know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had, was headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just as before, a warning precedes the next wave of plagues. Wrapped within this word of caution, the Lord makes plain his purpose to completely set apart his way and his power from the way and power of Pharaoh. In the first cycle of plagues, the Lord distinguished between his servant Moses and the servants of the Egyptian gods, the magicians. With the second cycle of plagues, the Lord set apart his people, the Israelites, from the people of the world, the Egyptians. In this last series of three, the Lord wants to make the point definitive. His reach is cosmic. His ways are everlasting. The plagues that come next will be comprehensive in their scope. What is about to be unleashed with such precision and accuracy in one corner of the earth is without precedent, naturally or historically. All of this is to demonstrate there is no one like me in all the earth. Or as the Bible says elsewhere, the Lord is God and there is no other. With the seventh plague, the heavens themselves are brought down upon Egypt. Atmospheric conditions mix together to create weather that is terrifying and deadly. It is a tempest without parallel, a cocktail of destructive hail, raging firestorms, and daggers of lightning. We are told that fireballs literally darted back and forth on the ground, annihilating anything and everything in its path. It is not just the people or animals that are affected by this. For the first time, we are told about the devastation brought upon the vegetation of all kinds. Imagine watching the sum and potential fruit of your daily labor in the desert sun being decimated in minutes. Imagine glancing up one moment to see the sky full of thunder, lightning, and hail, only to look down seconds later and witness the scorched remains of your crop, your herd, your home. Imagine looking out in the distance towards Goshen, where the Israelite slaves are gathered and seeing not fire and brimstone, but peaceful, sunny skies. We are told that prior to the downfall of fire and rain, some of Pharaoh's own people recognized what should have been obvious by now. When Moses proclaims pestilence, pestilence happens. They heeded God's warning and took shelter from the storm. And now, on the other side of this carnage, even those officials of Pharaoh who stayed on the fence with him finally admit that this is a battle that cannot be won. They boldly challenge Pharaoh to accept reality. Egypt is ruined. How much further are you going to push this? As his advisors parrot back, literally, the Lord's request through Moses and Aaron, the words that have now become a command 
Let my people go that they may worship me. Pharaoh just continues to stall. He refuses to give the order for the Israelites released. And so something else is released upon Egypt instead. Locusts. Locusts. Just as a strong east wind will later part the Red Sea, a similar east wind carries a swarm of locusts into Egyptian territory. Locusts may be nature's most striking example of the collective and destructive potential of a single species. Marvels of stamina, locusts can flap their wings nonstop for 17 hours and can fly at a cruising speed of 10 to 12 miles per hour for 20 hours. Moving swarms of locusts have a density of 130 million per square mile. An area of one square kilometer can contain as many as 50 million locusts. A single locust is capable of eating double its own body weight daily. So in a single night, a swarm of locusts can devour as much as 100,000 tons of vegetation. Locust swarms, in fact, continue to be one of the worst scourges to still inflict humanity. Heavy rains and unusually moist conditions foster their incredible multiplication. Massive plagues still breed and devastate parts of Africa today. Can we picture the horror of the Egyptians as crimson skies give way to clouds of insects? As peals of thunder are overtaken by the incessant humming of a feeding frenzy? If there was anything left in the fields, anything left in the storehouses after the hail, it has all been consumed by the locusts. Famine is no longer a threat in Egypt. It is a way of life. In response, Pharaoh sends for Moses. And then for the fourth time, Pharaoh asks if Moses will intercede for him. For the fourth time, Pharaoh promises that he will let Israel go. After the hailstorm, Pharaoh, as you heard, actually acknowledged his sin before God. This time, he goes even further. He asks for forgiveness. But there is no depth to his repentance. Pharaoh just can't let go completely. He sins again. He hardens his heart again. He does not follow through on his promise and let the people go. And even though any one of us would have seen this coming, even though we all probably would have doubted Pharaoh's sincerity from the very beginning, still Moses prays and God relents. Hints of grace, I think, in a story of judgment. Make note of this for later. And the Lord drives the horde of locusts into the Red Sea. The whole swarm of locusts is driven into the Red Sea and we're told that not one of them remained. This image we ought to linger on a little bit as it serves as some tragic foreshadowing, some tragic foreshadowing of the eventual, the eventual fate of Pharaoh and his army who too will be driven to their deaths in the Red Sea and we will be told at that time that not one of them remained. The darkness that covers the land of Egypt as the ninth plague begins serves in many ways as an ironic reflection on the state of Pharaoh's own heart. There are none so blind as those who won't see. Pharaoh refuses to see, and now no one will be able to. The darkness that descends upon the people is described as being thick. 
the kind of darkness that could be felt. Imagine the palpability of a strong, hot Santa Ana wind. But picture if that wind was black for three days. God isn't just turning out the lights in Egypt. He's pulling the plug on one of the Egyptians' most revered gods, the sun god, Ra. Ra was credited with the provision of light and warmth. His faithful radiance and daily brilliance resulted in great worship and devotion from the people. The one who served as Pharaoh was thought to be the earthly representation of Ra. That was what they believed in Egypt. That was what they based their lives on until today. Think of the contrast. My brothers and sisters, think of the contrast. The light and normality in the homes of Goshen and the cries all over Egypt swallowed by the darkness, the silence of nothingness. For three days, the physical reality of the Egyptian peer, people mirrors the spiritual reality of their lives. They are staring into the abyss, and the abyss is staring back at them. It is at this point in the Exodus story, my friends, that we need to stare into this abyss too. We need to ask the question, as I'm sure many of them did, how did it get this far? We need to reflect on the lessons to be learned from the answer to this question. And it begins and ends with Pharaoh. Have you been paying attention to Pharaoh's trajectory throughout the plagues? Pharaoh, as the ruler of a powerful nation, thinks he controls the earth, or at least his little corner of it. He refuses to acknowledge any authority. He lives by his own rules. His arrogance and his ignorance are not without their consequences, however. Not simply for himself, but for an entire nation and another race of people. Like Pharaoh, we think we're in control of our domain, too. Granted, our sphere of influence may not be as large, but the impact of our beliefs and our actions can be just as significant. We live in a time when nearly everyone celebrates individualism, the right of self-determination over and above any responsibility to the larger community. Many of us have embraced the myth that our private lives, our personal decisions, have nothing to do with anyone else. If no one gets hurt, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, who's to say what I believe? Who's to say what I do? And just as with Pharaoh, the Lord wants to challenge that assumption. One of the central messages that God has for Pharaoh is that all the earth belongs to him. Pharaoh thinks that he's in control, but it's an illusion. Pharaoh thinks that he is responsible and it only affects him, but God is making it clear that he has a greater responsibility. Before the onslaught of hail, locusts, and darkness, the Lord spells it out quite bluntly. Pharaoh has no power. God alone has the absolute power to do with Egypt, with the world, as he wishes. And each and every plague represents the Lord's infiltration of Pharaoh's power base. God is systematically unraveling Pharaoh's illusion of control. The Lord is sovereign over all. And as with Pharaoh, God invades our strongholds and our domains too. 
even the secret domains of our personal and private lives, even the secret domains where our fears and fantasies reign. Because God wants us to understand in this life that we have been given that there is nothing, nothing that we have, personal, private, public, or otherwise, that does not belong to him, that does not answer to him. The Lord is there, especially there, revealing himself to us plaguing us even, in order to escort us out of a lie, out of what is false into the real world, the world where he controls everything, the world where he calls every shot. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You can almost hear it being reverberated with each and every plague. And this is no mere statement of boasting on the Lord's part. The Lord, God isn't chest-thumping. God doesn't need to. The Lord's judgment comes by way of plagues that increase in severity, yes. But the Lord has also been gracious to Pharaoh, holding back. As God passes it along through Moses before the plague of hail, had he unleashed all of his power, Pharaoh would be dead by now. Egypt would be a memory. Beloved, the Lord's judgment as the Bible tells us again and again, and it's difficult for us to get our arms around this, but the Lord's judgment is also a means of his grace, a way of cutting through the red tape, cutting through all the obstacles that we put up, all the bull, and revealing himself in our lives. Pharaoh has nine different opportunities to get the message, nine different opportunities, nine different revelations of authority, unleashed, and then pulled back. Pharaoh's magicians see the writing on the wall and they know who it belongs to. His servants eventually come around and acknowledge the power of the Lord. Even some of his own people start to believe in the God of Moses. When the Israelites eventually leave Egypt, we are told that they leave as a mixed multitude. Some Egyptians were in that number. But Pharaoh's stubbornness remains firm. He will not cave in to the Lord. Oh, he'll appear to make progress. If you've been reading along as each week, you can see that Pharaoh appears to make progress. progress. He'll ask for prayer from, from Moses multiple times. He'll even confess his sin, as we heard, and, and admit his guilt, and not once, but twice. Pharaoh will even actually express words of repentance and humble himself enough to ask Moses to pray for his forgiveness. But time and time again, Pharaoh's heart just won't be in it. His piety, his confession, his humility will continually be exposed as a front, a means of negotiation, of maneuvering, of seeing how far he can take things without surrendering total control. Pharaoh knows how to confess sin. Pharaoh knows how to ask Moses to pray for his forgiveness. But Pharaoh does not know how to surrender himself to the Lord. He does not know how to humble himself before the rule of God. Instead, he always tries to hold on to his control. He always tries to work out a bargain. Moses, you cannot go. Okay, your men can go, but not their families. He tries to make concessions, but he's always looking for a loophole. Okay, the families can go, but not their livestock. 
He wants to hold on to some measure of his authority. He will ask for forgiveness, but he will refuse to submit. He will say what needs to be said to get relief. But once his prayers are answered, and please let us note that Pharaoh's prayers are answered every time. When his prayers are answered, Pharaoh will break his word. He will harden his heart and will relinquish neither the Israelites nor himself to God. Beloved, I cannot help but wonder how much we are like Pharaoh. Always calculating and miscalculating when it comes to God. Never realizing that God is God and therefore beyond our calculations. How often do we, like Pharaoh, try to wheel and deal with the Lord? If you grow up in a Christian home, as many of us have, or if you've grown up in the church, if you come every week, it doesn't take long before you assimilate, you learn quickly how to talk the talk. It's easy to become a quick and casual study of the supposed rules of the game. A little reverence, a little humility, a little confession, a little repentance. That's what it takes to get a little relief, to get a little blessing. When it comes to getting what we want, we can become quick learners. We memorize the rules. We play the game. We know how to give the Lord what he wants. I'm going to say something that's going to tick off a number of people in this room, but you need to hear it. Some of you are playing games with God. You know how to show up at church on Sunday when you show up, and you think that somehow that means you're in some kind of relationship with God. You memorized a couple of prayers. You can say a creed. You can sing a few songs, and you think that somehow that has set you apart, that your slate is clean. I'm here to tell you, you're in the same boat as Pharaoh, and you need to read this story carefully. We have learned well, all of us, prayers for forgiveness. But for too many of us, too many of us, prayers of submission are foreign to our lips. We're just like Pharaoh. We're buying time. We're dodging plagues. But the truth is, as we're going to find out next week, no matter what we do, we're all of us, every single one of us, still headed toward the tenth and final plague. There's no bargaining. There's no empty prayers, no sleights of hand, or even sincere works that we can do that can hold back the angel of death. Oh yeah, we're staring into the abyss now, aren't we? Beloved, if we only perceive the power of God if that's all that our understanding and our relationship with God is, is trying to tap into the power of God, but we fail to recognize, to wrestle with the goodness of the Lord, then our lives will either become a mad dash of trying to make the right choices in, avoid, to, in, in order to avoid getting zapped by God, or our lives, worse, will become an ongoing series of negotiations in which we keep promising the Lord things that we have no intention of doing. One of the worst mistakes I ever made when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, never say this to your parents, ever. As I was rebelling, as I was living, out my own, living into my own Pharaoh, and that's really what adolescence is about, isn't it? At one point, I finally just said to my father, and again, as I'm going to say this out loud, so do, say anything, but don't say this. I finally said, I will do or say whatever I have to to get what I want. That is all my father needed. 
it was game over. <laughs> My sister was present. She still goes, what a moron. What? <laughs> I mean, think it, but don't say that. <laughs> Beloved, if we only perceive the power of God, but fail to recognize, to wrestle with the goodness of the Lord, our lives will either become a mad dash of trying to make the right choices in order to avoid getting zapped by that power, or worse, our lives will become an ongoing series of negotiations in which we keep promising the Lord things that we have no intention of doing, and that isn't faith. It isn't faith. It's a paralyzing way to live. It's slavery. If our relationship with the Lord is motivated solely by the desire for relief from distress, if all we're after is fire insurance, then we don't have a relationship with the Lord. And that's not a judgment. It's a statement of fact. There's no relationship because if relief is all we're after, when the relief comes, we just change our mind and go back to living the way we were before. The difference between true and false repentance is simple. True repentance is motivated by a desire for relationship. False repentance is motivated by a desire not for relationship, but rather a return to our state of control or perceived control. Think about it. Pharaoh receives strong testimony from his own people who have the courage to confront him with the truth and advise him to submit to the Lord. His servants present the evidence. Egypt as a country is in ruins. Egypt as a people will not survive if he persists. The holding on to the Israelites is going to mean the loss of Pharaoh's own people. But Pharaoh remains blind. He refuses to admit what is happening right in front of his eyes. The trials he has put his own people through. Beloved, there are none so blind as those who won't see. Pharaoh knows the weakness of his position. He's been playing poker with God. He's been playing poker with God through Moses, and he's had a losing hand every time. In a last-ditch effort, and with the ninth plague, Pharaoh makes a terrible miscalculation. He goes all in with nothing showing. Pharaoh orders Moses from his presence and makes a brazen threat against Moses' life if he sees him again. It is a power play born out of anger and desperation. It is a bluff born out of weakness, not strength. Pharaoh is watching his world slip away, and in sending Moses away, he is hoping not to have to deal with him anymore and to still maintain whatever control he has left. And yet, because he cannot let go, Pharaoh is about to lose everything. When I was reading this, the words of Jesus came right into my mind at that moment. That, those last words between Moses and Pharaoh, the words of Jesus, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Beloved, many of us are aware when things are not right in our lives. Some of us here today can even pinpoint the particular choices that we've made that have allowed such chaos to happen in our lives. Most of us, though, try and discover 
seemingly pragmatic solutions to our problems, a new philosophy, a, a new lifestyle, a, a renewed determination. Faith in God, submission to God is in there somewhere, but usually it's with a string attached. We never want to fully relinquish all of our lives and our possessions to the Lord. And yet we find when we don't, we keep coming back and having the same chaos in our lives. Different variations, but the same chaos, the same emptiness, the same abyss. Control is only an illusion. But like Pharaoh, we will go to any lengths and take increasingly desperate measures to maintain that illusion. And just like Pharaoh, when all of our tricks and tactics fail, we can explode in anger and ultimatums too. We'll hold on tighter, trying to control our environment and our people. We'll hold on tighter only to learn the hard way that grasping for control is destructive. Submission to God with strings is nothing but an effort at deception. And the Lord cannot and will not be deceived. We only deceive ourselves. We think it protects us, but it destroys us, and it risks damage to those around us as well. As Pharaoh is about to find out, as we need to hear, the end of deception is destruction. When we hold back anything from the Lord, we risk everything. There are none so blind as those who won't see. But the good news, and yes, there is good news, the good news is that we worship a God in Jesus Christ who will not allow us to remain in darkness, constricted forever to our own narrow vision of life. This God will not sit idly by as our grasping for control destroys our lives, destroys our relationships, destroys our very souls. We are told earlier in this story that the purpose of the plagues is not only that Pharaoh and Egypt will know the Lord, it's not only that the Israelites will know the Lord. These things are happening so that those who come after, and that means us, you and I, will know the greatest God. Beloved, these plagues, as hard as it is to comprehend, are even for us the very means of our redemption. Together they expose and judge all of our excuses, all of our haggling, all of our miscalculations, all of our half-hearted efforts when it comes to this God. These revelations of power build in their intensity as this God makes himself more and more obvious in our lives and in our world so that we cannot help but see and know that he is the Lord and there is no other. These mighty works culminate, as we know, on the other side of this story, in the 11th hour on a cross at Calvary, where once and for all, this God stares into the abyss that we cannot look into and cries, freedom! For these plagues are more than judgments. They are faith-creating acts seeking to free us not to our, from our enslavement to an earthly king, but to something far more sinister, to liberate us from our captivity to sin and death. Through them, God is taking us out of the darkness and into the light, destroying what is false in our lives in order to lead us into what is true. And that is good news. Because still today, 
we find ourselves making an awful lot of bricks without straw. Still today, we need to see and know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And these mighty acts of God that culminate with the cross of Christ remind us, encourage us, convict us that our last great and final exodus, the fullness of the kingdom is still to come. But the Lord, the Lord our God, is with us every step of the way. Amen.